I woke this morning to a picture that had been texted to me by my daughter, Hannah. Yesterday was moving day for them, getting all their stuff out of their apartment in Wisconsin, and they're beginning to make their way back to Washington State. Yes! (laughs) Bringing my grandson with them. And uh, so the picture was of three U-Haul pods that were now filled with all the stuff that they had loaded out of their apartment, and her caption was, our entire life in three pods. And I texted her back and I said, you know, nothing in those three pods is going to last. None of that is what matters. And the truth is, we are all here for one reason. One reason. And that is to know and declare Jesus. That's it. This entire life that we scrap in and we struggle in and we try so hard to do all these different things in this life that we live is a drop in the ocean of eternity. We're going to land there in that place one day and this life is going to be nothing. We're going to wonder why did we ever stress over things in that life. We're going to realize that this life was about that one thing. I am so thankful, Lord Jesus, I made that decision on that day way back when. Because that's the only thing that mattered. None of the stuff in the pods matters. And with that in mind, we open up to Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. And we truly come to the apex of the entire sermon. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, which says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Lord, amazing words, powerful teaching. And I pray that we would have the wherewithal this morning to soak every ounce of it up and to be cognizant of it and understanding of these things, to have revelation in our hearts, Father. That's to your heart behind all that is being said here. Two short verses and yet containing so much, so much hope here, Lord. So much hope that we thank you for and praise you for. And I simply ask, Father, you'll allow me to get out of the way and you would speak to us by your word this morning and help us to hear your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Early Wednesday morning from his mountaintop log cabin home in Montreat, North Carolina, at the age of 99, America's pastor went home to be with Jesus. You all are aware of this by now. After six decades of evangelistic campaigns before an audience of nearly 215 million people, 415 crusades, 185 countries, and to an additional 2.2 billion people through radio, TV, film, and webcasts, Billy Graham offered a single message. Christ died for the sinner. Again and again, year after year, crusade after crusade, he stood up there and he said the same thing. Oh, a few of the stories would change. Perhaps some of the scriptural choices of his sermons would change. But it always landed in the same place. Christ died for the sinner. And I come to him, Billy Graham's favorite song was, Just as I am. Just as I am. Billy Graham has joined the great cloud of witnesses. Isn't that great? What a marvelous thought. There was a quote that was ascribed to him that went viral this week. Perhaps you read it. He said, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. Now, I don't want to burst any quote bubbles here. But he either didn't actually say that or he said it, but he borrowed most of it from another of America's pastors, a man who lived back in the 1800s, a man by the name of Dwight L. Moody. 
You see, Moody is the one who actually first said, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher. That is all. Out of this old clay tenement, into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot change, a body fashioned like unto His glorious body. I love that. This old tenement. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. He said, For we know that if the earthly tent, or you could say tenement, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this purpose is God who gave us the spirit as a pledge, therefore being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. That's our hope. That is the great hope of life in Christ Jesus. That's how Billy Graham could say before his death, don't believe that I have died. That's how D.L. Moody said it. That's how the scriptures teach it. Oh, you may hear someday that Pastor Rick has died, has gone on to be with the Lord. He has. He's alive forever. And that is our hope. And it's a marvelous hope. And it's not a hope against hope. And it's not a false hope. And it's not an empty hope. It's the hope that we have been given in Jesus, who Himself died and lives. Who is the proof of the hope. For truly, if you believe that Jesus is alive, then you know that the life to come is promised and is guaranteed and is our hope. We just left the great hall of faith. Hebrews chapter 11. Last week we began to look at it. We looked at it on Wednesday night, the prior, and and last Wednesday night as well. Forty verses of exhibits and portraits. And I like thinking of it that way. Whenever I read Hebrews 11, it's like walking through this great hall with a multitude of named examples, anonymous faithful, spanning nearly 6,000 years of earth's history. People who believed in God, trusted Him, had faith. And in that great hall, we saw faith exemplified. These examples of faith, drawn out of difficult lives, struggling lives, People with problems and issues, just like you, just like me, but people who showed faith, and because of that, God blessed them. Because of their faith. But now we come out of the hall into what you might call the courtyard of hope. From the great hall of faith into the courtyard of hope, where hope is now verified. Now I'll tell you right now, if you want the complete verification of hope, you need to be here Wednesday night. And this is a blanket invitation to everyone to come back Wednesday. Maybe you don't make it your your business every week to be here on Wednesday night. Please consider doing so this week. Because the verification of hope, this is something we all need. I've already done all the study for it. I'm like way ahead. So I know what's coming. I may just give it all to you this morning. But you need to come back and think through these things. Hope verified. That's chapter 12. Remember I told you our little outline for the end of the book here? Faith exemplified in chapter 11. Hope verified in chapter 12. And finally, love applied in chapter 13. Well, now we're into the chapter where hope is verified. And truly, honestly, we only have time this morning to spend our entire time on two verses. The two opening verses of the Courtyard of Hope. Very familiar to many of you. In fact, to be honest, I was going to just kind of jog right on by them midweek. But then snow and ice and a few other issues caused us to have to wait until this morning. (laughs) The whole issue this week threw off my groove. You could say, God pulled my Nikes. So we couldn't run just yet. I'm glad He did. Because what we need to think about in these two verses is huge. 
It's absolutely huge. You may, again, have heard this many times in your lives. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Oh, yes, yes, we've heard that. We've quoted that. We've studied that. We've thought about that. I I have never thought about it like I have this week. Note this. We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So great a cloud of witnesses. Note this, witnesses, not spectators. Witnesses, not spectators. They're not a bunch of twelves. In the stands, shouting out from the sidelines, blowing out their throats, wearing blue and green face paint and wigs. That's not who we're talking about here. They're not cheering us on with with no real sense of what it's really like on the field. These are those, these witnesses spoken of here are those who by faith, back in 11 verse 33, conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Active witnesses, not passive spectators. They saw it all and they witnessed it. But get this, understand, the great cloud of witnesses are not bystanders to your faith and to mine. They're called witnesses because they are living testimonies to the truth of God. Their lives proclaiming what they saw, what they knew to be true. Living testimonies by word and by deed of the Christ. Of the Christ. In Acts chapter 1, they were asking Him, saying, Lord, is it at this time You are restoring the kingdom to Israel? This is after the resurrection. So they see their glorious Lord Jesus alive again, and they think, okay, well, if death can't hold him down, then the kingdom's coming. The kingdom's coming. It's got to be now. And they begin asking him, are we ready? Are we good to go? Oh, (laughs) he says, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Notice that the kingdom's coming. It's just not ours to know exactly when. And he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. And they became just that. Witnesses, martus. Where we get our word martyr, they became the martus. Those who combined experience with confession and spiritual power all by faith. And by the way, same is true of you and me today. The experience and the confession and the testimony and the power are yours and mine in Christ Jesus. You might say, well, wait a minute, Rick. Wait. Jesus said you will be witnesses, talking to the apostles and those who came after. We get that. The Hebrew writer is talking about the great cloud of witnesses and described them all in chapter 11 as those who came before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus spoke of both. Both those who came before His death, burial, and resurrection and those who would come after. He said in Matthew 13, 16, Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. What's the point? These were witnesses of what they could not see or hear. Those who came before. Guess what? Same with those who come after. Witnesses of what they could not see or hear. That's you. We are like the prophets before. 
Like those who trusted in Jesus before, who followed the Christ before the Christ even showed up on the earth. They didn't see, they didn't hear, but they trusted God for Him. They knew He was coming. We in the same way know He has come and we know He is coming. And so we, in a way, we are these witnesses. We're not the great cloud He's talking about in chapter 12, but we are called to be witnesses just like they were witnesses. These witnesses, this great cloud of witnesses had skin in the game. Again, not just bystanders. Not just watching. They lived this out. Jude tells us, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones. That was Enoch. Enoch who had skin in the game, who saw and proclaimed what would come at the very end. Then there was Jacob. Jacob had skin in the game. In Genesis 49, verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Or what about Daniel? Who saw in Daniel 7.13, he said, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Do you realize what, what am I saying here? That the witnesses saw Jesus before he came and proclaimed it. It wasn't just that they stood by and watched. They were willing to take the risk of opening their mouths, even if they would be mocked for it. We talked last week about Noah building an ark at a weird time because he trusted in the Lord. Witnesses who acted on what they saw, on what they understood to be true. It's David in Psalm 22. Can you imagine singing that song for the first time for your people gathered around? Psalm 22, the psalm of the cross? They have pierced my hands and feet. What are you talking about, David, you weirdo? What about all the other psalms where David proclaims the Christ can't possibly be talking about himself? He was a witness. It's Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7 talking about one who would be born of a a virgin. That's weird, man. Or Isaiah chapter 9, a son will be given to us. Or Isaiah chapter 53, he was pierced through for our sins and transgressions. Or Isaiah chapter 61, Or really the whole entire prophecy of Isaiah. Just read the whole book. 66 chapters of Isaiah proclaiming the Christ before the Christ walked the earth. Witnesses. Not bystanders. Not spectators. Witnesses who lived what they believed. In fact, it's all the prophets. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.11, they were the ones who were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicated as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. All of these people, all of this great cloud of witnesses prior to the writing of Hebrews, all of these put their lives on the line for what they knew to be true. That's a witness. Again, not a bystander. And this comes all the way down to the very last of the Hebrew prophets, J the B. John the Baptist, who said, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Matthew 3, verses 11 and 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, John said. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And then, and then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan. John proclaiming. Do you remember the story of John the Baptist that when John saw Jesus coming, he said, I didn't even recognize him until the Holy Spirit came upon him. Until the Holy Spirit descended on him. I didn't recognize him. Well, John, how can you not recognize him? He's your cousin, man. No, no, he recognized Jesus, his cousin. He just didn't recognize Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus the Messiah. He didn't realize that's who he was until that glorious moment when he baptized Jesus. So even before that, John is testifying he's coming. John knew by faith because the Lord had told him the Christ is coming and John put his life on the line for it, ended up beheaded. What I'm saying is this. These are the great cloud of witnesses, but but that great cloud has been swelling for 2,000 more years. 
The great cloud of witnesses described here is not just those who came before Christ, but it's everyone who has come since then and put their faith on the line for Jesus and lived out for Him. Leading up to this very morning, this this expanding cumulonimbus of witnesses. This massive cloud of witnesses who know the score. They get the victories. And they understand the defeats. They know the wins of faith and the losses. The gains and the pains. They get the resurrections and the persecutions of living by faith and hope. This great cloud of witnesses. As Paul wrote, we have a hope that does not disappoint, Romans 5, 5. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Amazing, we are surrounded by that. By those who have been in the game, who have played the game, who have experienced all the good and the bad and the ugly of the game. That's the great cloud. It's not just a bunch of people on the other side of the fence watching you. These are those who get what it's like to live by faith. But here comes the bombshell. Verse 39 of chapter 11 tells us, And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. So note this, not only are they witnesses, not spectators, but these are witnesses who were not satisfied. Witnesses not satisfied. Now, Now don't get me wrong, from Abel to Billy, they're at home with Jesus. So that in and of itself is, is great satisfaction. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, We're of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. That's what happens when someone who loves Jesus dies. The Spirit goes immediately home to be with the Lord. Yet, yet, in this entire huge, growing, great cloud of witnesses, none have received what was promised. Not one. Not yet. They're witnesses in waiting. They're witnesses on hold, if you will. Now you might ask, well, if they're already at home with the Lord, what is this promise that they did not receive? Good question. Romans chapter 8, verse 24 says, In hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Perseverance is key. Tenacity and endurance. Hang on to that thought for a moment. Of this so great a cloud of witnesses, get this, we are not... This is so important. We are not just running before them. We are running for them. That is, they are waiting on us to finish the race they began. Because only together will we all receive what was promised. We were talking about this last week, some of our staff. You know what this is? This is a relay. We are in a relay race. The baton of the gospel passed from martyrs to martyrs, from martyr to martyr, from witness from, to witness for millennia, so that together we may receive what has been promised. The great cloud of witnesses still waiting for it. You and I this morning still waiting for it. But the day is fast approaching when all together we're going to receive that marvelous promise. Which is what? Wait for it. Wait for it. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We're going to work our way backwards through the rest of verse 1 here for a moment. And notice the running metaphor, literally. There's a running metaphor here. Paul used this metaphor a lot. Now, I'm not claiming Paul was the pastor here. As we've said earlier, that's that's up for debate. But Paul often compared Christianity to the running of a race. At the end of the verse, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
You can already right off the bat understand that endurance is going to be required. This is not a sprint. You're going to need to persevere. You're going to need tenacity. We are going to have to somehow endure because we're running a long race. Paul said in Acts 20 verse 24, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish the course and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. My life doesn't matter. What I've got in the pods can stay there. Only one thing matters, and that is the gospel of Jesus. And I am running that race, Paul says. Galatians chapter 5, verse 7. He says, you were running well. What hindered you from obeying the truth? 1 Corinthians 9.24 Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? One receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then they do it, or they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. In other words, not directionless. 2 Timothy 4.7 He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. But as Paul told Corinth, this running is not aimless. It's running in the race. It's running the course that is set before us. The word race is important to note here. Because it's more than what it seems. It's actually translated conflict. To run in the conflict, or to run in the contest, or to run in the struggle, the word translated race here is agon. It's where we get our word agony. To run in the agony. Not like the agony on the faces of the Canadian women's hockey team as they lost to the USA. As we stole the gold right out from under them. (laughs) This is, get this, this is the agon that draws out hope. The race, the agon, drawing out hope from us. It depends on what the race is for. You might say, wait a minute, how is conflict, how is struggle, how is agony hopeful? You're telling us that the race we run is an agon? And yes, it's a word that was used for the Olympic Games in Greece early on. The agony that went into the preparation and the competing itself, the struggle, it's hard. It's difficult. And so that's the race that we run. But the word agon is used several times, five times beyond this. So six times in the Bible, the word agon is used in the New Testament. And that's instructive for us to understand how this agon, how this race, how this conflict draws out hope. How is agony hopeful? Listen to this. Note takers, jot down five things. Number one. Number one, we struggle for Christ's sake. We struggle for Christ's sake. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Experiencing the same conflict, the same agon, which you saw in me and now here in me. We struggle for Christ's sake. And you know what, as far as I'm concerned, knowing Jesus, that's enough. If that was the only reason we struggled in this life, that would be worth it. Jesus is worth the struggle. We struggle for His sake. Because He's worth it all. I know of no one else who is worth what Jesus is worth. And to gain Christ, I would lose myself, Paul says. That's the agon. That is worth it. We struggle for Christ's sake. We also struggle for others' sake. Colossians chapter 2 verse 1. I want you to know how great a struggle and a gone I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my faith that their hearts may be concerned or encouraged. That their hearts may be encouraged. So that means I am struggling for other people's encouragement. My agony, if my agony can bring someone else joy and faith, 
Praise the Lord. If my agony can bring about hope in another believer or in someone who now comes to faith in Jesus, wonderful. We struggle for the encouragement of others. We struggle for Christ's sake. You know, it's really it's the same way that the great cloud of witnesses encourages us. The last couple of weeks, think about it. Man, if Abraham can do it, I can do it. <laughs> if Sarah can believe, or Rahav, or Jephthah, or some of these judges that we read about, if they can make it, if they are called faithful, I've really got a shot. It's encouraging. Their struggle becomes our encouragement of hope. So your struggle for the Gospel becomes the encouragement of hope for someone else. This is something we don't talk about enough in the church. We talk an awful lot about how the Gospel feeds me. We talk about the blessings of God for me. We talk about our own struggles and difficulties and how God's going to help us get through. We don't often think about the fact that my struggle is hope for someone else. That my pain brings faith to another heart. That my walking out all of the hardships of my life in faith and in hope and with love encourages all those around me. And in that way, I'm kind of like the witnesses. I'm part of that great cloud. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2 gives us another example of the agon. It says, after we have already suffered and have been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition, much agon. So what does that mean? We struggle to develop boldness. Paul says we went through the struggle and we became bolder because of it. In another place, Paul says, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Guess what? You could translate that, run the good race of faith. Because fight is agonizomai, the good fight is agon. Struggle in the great contest of faith. And in 2 Timothy 2.4, again, he says, I have fought the good fight, which is the good agon. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. So what does that tell us about the struggle? It tells us, number four, that we struggle to increase faith. If you missed any of these, let me go over them again. We struggle for Christ's sake. We struggle for others' sake. We struggle for boldness. And we struggle to increase faith. The agon does all of this. The conflict, the difficulty that we face, it does all of these things. And after increasing faith, we run with endurance, he says, the race set before us because we struggle to draw out hopeful endurance. The more you endure in the struggle, the stronger you get. The deeper the hope. And if you right now are just having a hard time in your life, A hard time getting from today to tomorrow. Facing anxiety or depression or despair. You need to understand that when you move through that and get to the other side of it, you are stronger than you are right now. You will gain endurance through it. Some of the best counseling in the world is, in my opinion, behavioral psychology. Because it gives you actual practical things to do. You know what the behavioral psychologist will tell those who deal with panic attacks? Stay with the panic. Stay in the anxiety. Don't flee. Don't run away. Don't try to appease it or placate it. Stay in it. Why? Because as you stay in it and move through it, you realize the anxiety passes. You start to understand that the panic does indeed go away. And when panic tries to show up the next time, you're stronger than you were the last time. That's what the conflict does. Why does God allow us struggle and conflict in our lives? Because we can struggle for Christ's sake, for others' sake, to develop boldness, to increase faith, and to draw out hopeful endurance. That's why we run the race. That's why we endure the agony of the challenge that is set before us. Romans 5 verse 3 says, we exult in our tribulations. What a weird statement is that? We just exult in our bad days. 
We exalt in tribulations. Why? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance proving character. And proving character hope. And hope does not disappoint. Romans 8.25 If we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. With endurance. Endurance. Listen, the wandering witnesses and the sojourners and strangers and exiles on the earth, back in chapter 11, verse 13, that's how they were all described, these people in the great cloud. They show us something about endurance. And that is that endurance comes by lightening the load. By lightening the load. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. You want to run with endurance? Get rid of the encumbrances and the entanglements. Get rid of them. Let them go. Every encumbrance in the Greek, that is pas onkas. Pas onkas. Pas meaning all. So he leaves nothing out. Every encumbrance, all encumbrances, all excess bulk, mass, or weight, that's onkas. It could be a fleshly protuberance. It could be some kind of bulk or or heaviness. Anything that would slow you down, get rid of it. Now, if you're an athlete or a runner, you know this. Runners will use resistance training to strengthen themselves to prepare for the actual race itself. They'll use uh, different methods of external friction to increase muscle mass. They may be ankle weights, going out jogging with ankle weights. Maybe, like we used to do when I was a kid, we would go down to the beach, our high school track team, and we ran in the sand, which I hated. I loved going into the waves, but I hated running in the sand because it was so exhausting. Because you're running with friction, you're, you're, you're running with excess bulk or mass or weight. But get this, understand this, when the race is on, the weights come off. We're no longer preparing for the race, we are in the race, baby. Drop the weights. Practically. Right now, what is weighing down your run? What is making your hope heavy? Because heaviness breeds hopelessness. What's the encumbrance in your life that's getting in the way of just running fast and free for Jesus Christ? What are you holding on to? Or what has its hooks in you? That's slowing down your ability to run with faith and hope and in love. Now only you know, and Jesus knows, I don't know. I know what is in my life. I know what I need to shed. What weights I need to take off. What heaviness needs to be dropped. What bulk is there that slows me down. Now, Jesus does point out two pretty heavy weights that are generic across the board. Most people, at some point or another, deal with these two weights couple of weights that the enduring exiles of the witnesses didn't cling to. These are the things that go in the pods. <laughs> Matthew 13.22, Jesus said, The one on whom seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth. Everybody at some time deals with one or both of those things. Lose the excess. Drop the weight, especially the thorny briars of sin. He not only says, let us lay aside every encumbrance, but he says, and the sin which so easily entangles us. Easily entangles? It's a single word. Euperistatos. And that word is interesting because the way the word is constructed in the Greek, it literally means clever manipulation. The euperistatos, cunning entrapment. The the cunning entrapment of sin. You know what that sounds like? Sounds like sin is a living thing. The clever manipulation, what he's doing here, and the Bible does this, is personifying sin as something that intentionally closes in and tries to trip you up. 
tries to mess with you, tries to control as if, almost as if sin had a will of its own. And we get this all the way back in the conversation God had with Cain, Genesis chapter 4 verse 7, when he says, if you do not do well, will not your countenance, or if you, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. Throw off the sin that so easily entangles, so cleverly manipulates. As Moses said in Numbers 32.23, Be sure your sin will find you out. I've told my children, all six of them, all their lives, I pray that your sin finds you out. Be sure it will. You are not the one person. I am not the one person who's going to get away with it. It finds us all out because sin is a clever manipulator. Sin is an entrapper. Sin entangles and no one is strong enough to manage it. I just got a little sin I keep over here on the side. Uh, the then you know what you're doing? You're running through thorn bushes. You're trying to race through briar patches. You can't do it. You won't get through it. Do you this morning feel powerless to some kind of sin in your life? A sin so big that it's got a chokehold on you. And you can't seem to get free from it. Listen. Of all that we've said, it all comes to a point right here. The so great a cloud of witnesses, Abel, you know, even to Peter, Paul, Billy Graham, they can be so encouraging, but they cannot empower you. They can't do it. They can be great examples. They can cheer you on. They can understand. But they can't offer one iota of spiritual strength or power for you to run this race. No, you have to fix your eyes on the greater. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And we come to the point of the entire teaching, the entire sermon, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And we don't have a good translation for fixing our eyes. Fixing is probably the best we've got. But this word is big, aphorontis. Aphorontis, which the King James translation says, looking to Jesus. It's not good enough. The ESV also says looking to Jesus. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says keeping our eyes on. That's a little closer. I think the NASB is probably the closest. Fixing our eyes upon Jesus. Because this word means, and get this, it's critical. It means not only to focus all of our attention on Him, eyes and mind, everything focused on Him, it also means to turn away from everything else. That it's both a looking to and a turning from. It's not keeping an eye on things like, you know, parents of small children will, will do in a grocery store. You know what I'm talking about? Your eyes are on what you've got to purchase and put in the cart, but you're also, your eyes are also on your kids. You're kind of doing this all the time. That's not what we're talking about here. Eyes on Jesus, looking at Jesus, but also looking over here. And then looking at Jesus and looking over here. Fix your eyes on Jesus. What is being called for here is 150% attention on Christ. Not even on the great cloud of witnesses. Not on other believers. Not on yourself. Eyes fixed on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the only one in the fixed position. He's the only one who is immovable. Jesus Christ is the same forever. Yes. And that's why, by the way, I've had to repeat that every single teaching we've done in Hebrews. It's not just been a teaching tool. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That is the apex of the entire sermon. Fix your eyes on Him. Focus on Him. We don't lay our our faith or our hope on other people and certainly, again, not on ourselves. Jesus is the one who's fixed. He's the one who is never moving He is the one to whom and by whom we can race to the finish. 
He's the one who gives us the power to do it. Nobody else. And you will not find the power within unless He is within. There's that that scene in Apollo 13 which stands as one of my favorite all-time movies. Perhaps you've seen Apollo 13 and, and you know about the, the disaster that, that, that happened when there was the explosion on board of Apollo 13 and they had to scrap the space mission of going to the moon and just try to figure out a way just to get home. And on the way back, and I'm not even sure if this exactly happened. I, I read the book Lost Moon and I can't remember if, if Jim Lovell says they did this, but it's great in the movie. They're, they're on their way back, they're headed for home, but they're off course. And they begin to realize if they stay off course, they're going to skip off the Earth's atmosphere and just disappear into space. So they have to do a course correction. Problem is, because of the low batteries and everything that's shut down, they can't make any course correction based on any instrumentation in, in the Apollo. So, so they're talking about, what do we do here? And Jim Lovell says, wait a minute, all we need is a fixed point in space, right? To do this burn. We have to, a fixed point that we look at and we go toward that. Isn't that what we need? And of course NASA says yes. And he says, well, I think we have one. And he's looking out the window and he sees the earth. And in this scene, he uses home to navigate home. That's what it means to fix your eyes on Jesus. You use home to navigate home. We look to Jesus, the fixed point on whom we lock our eyes. Because saints and apostles and martyrs and witnesses can be encouraging, but they cannot get us home. I can't get you home. Love to help. Sorry. I can't even get myself home. What are you looking at me for? I can't do it. They can't do it. They don't have the supernatural power. They are not the same yesterday and today and forever. And suddenly we realize what the point of Hebrews is. Oh, it's called the letter to the Hebrews, but it's really the sermon of Jesus Christ. We realize the reason why the the Hebrew writer spent so much time and energy doing what he did. That is calling out the testimony of Jesus. He's the Son. He's the Heir. He's the Creator. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. He's greater than the angels. And for a little while was made lower than the angels, remarkably. He's the Apostle. He's the High Priest of our confession after the order of Melchizedek. He's the perfect sacrifice. His flesh is the veil through which we go. It's all Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus because with all of these other descriptions, guess what? He's also the author and perfecter of faith. He's the one who does it. Author means chief. It means predecessor. It's not just one who writes. It's the one who leads the charge. It's first man out on the battlefield. He was the first man out. He's not only the one who who leads and precedes our faith, He also finishes it. So He went first, and now He's coming after. You see? When the Bible calls Him, when He calls Himself the, the root and the descendant of David... He came before and He comes after. He does that with you. He is your root and your descendant. Get this. Not your descendant. That's a little little off. But He comes before you and He comes after you. He went first and He's coming behind you to bring you in. He's the predecessor and He is the finisher. He is the perfecter. That word, He finishes, He authors, He chiefs, and He perfects or He finishes our faith. The word perfects there is teleotis. Does that sound familiar? Teleotis from the root to telestai. It is finished to telestai. John 19.30 The final words of Jesus on the cross. It is perfected. It is done. It is finished. Philippians 1.6 Paul picks it up and says, I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. There's your hope. There's your hope. Your hope is in Jesus. Your hope is Jesus. He he did it all. He's the one we look to. He's the fixed position. He's the one who began your faith. He's the one who will end your faith. It's all Jesus. 
who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Make no mistake about it. Jesus hated the cross. He despised it. He didn't look forward to it. He didn't think, okay, this will be cool. He hated it. Jesus would not have worn a little cross necklace around His neck. He hated it. He abhorred it. Just as we talked about last week, God abhorred human sacrifice. That didn't change with the cross. Remember, Jesus became a curse. He became sin on the cross. Jesus hated the cross. But you know what He did? He endured it. Consider Him. Having a rough day? Feeling a little depressed? Consider Him. He hated the cross. Before, during, and after. But He went through it, man. And note what He did. He took His seat. He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And note this, this is the fifth time in the sermon He's reminded us of the seat of authority of Jesus. Five times. Bible students, what is five the number of in the Bible? Grace. Grace. And what did the Hebrew writer tell us back in chapter 4, verse 16? Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Because that's where Jesus is seated. The throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But listen, if He hated the cross so much, if He had to endure the cross, though He knew He would sit down at the right hand of the throne of God, why did He do it? For the joy set before Him. For the joy set before Him, which is what? It's you. You are the joy set before Him. You know, last week when we were talking about what's your value, there's your value. Jesus looked through the horror of the cross to the other side and was joyful because He saw you. Because He realized that by moving through the cross, you would be with Him. You could be saved. What a profound statement of your worth and mine that we are the joy set before Him. And that because of faith in Him, trusting in Him, and fixing our eyes on Him, we will be with Him. That's our hope. That's why this is the courtyard of hope, why chapter 12 is all about hope, and it gets better even as we go. He is our greatest hope. Now, I told you earlier with our staff, we were talking about how this race that we run is like a relay. So let me give you two things to finish this up, just to apply this this morning. And we'll have to leave the rest for Wednesday night. Two basic rules for every relay runner. They were the first rules I was taught when I was running relays in high school. Two basic rules. Number one, don't drop the baton. Because when that baton is passed, and that's that critical moment, if you're the runner receiving or handing off the baton, that is the critical moment. Don't drop it, man. Don't drop it. Because if it hits the track, you're done. Race is over. You're out. Don't drop the baton. That is, and this is all you must do, uphold your witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't drop the baton. Too many believers don't even realize what they hold in their hands, what the baton is. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said in Philippians 2.16, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I, or we could say we, will have reason to glory because I, or again we can say we, did not run in vain. We're not running in vain. Having dropped the baton several lengths back, Oh well, we'll just kind of keep going along. No, we have the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. That is our baton, and that is yours to pass on. Who are you passing it on to? Who are you handing the gospel to right now in your life? Well, I hate when you tell me that, Rick, because then I've got to go out and feel guilty that I didn't tell someone about Jesus this week. I'm talking to me! Who are we passing the gospel to? That's got to be on our minds. That's not there to make us feel guilty that we're not evangelical enough. It's there to remind us why we're here. 
You already believe in Jesus? Praise God, you got your salvation. Now pass the baton. Don't drop it. And secondly, and equally important, stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. You get out of your lane, you run into someone else's lane, you're out. Stay in your lane. Jesus had just finished telling Peter how he was going to die. And when you're older, someone else is going to take you and they're going to dress you and they're going to lead you to somewhere you don't want to go, he said. And and Peter's thinking about this. and, And he turns around. This is on the beach of the Sea of Galilee. He turns around and he, and he sees John. Peter says in classic Peter style, John 21 verse 20, Lord, what about this man? It's not just classic Peter style, it's classic human style. We say, well, yeah, okay, that's great, Lord. What about him? What about her? Perhaps I didn't pass the baton this week, but neither did they. <laughs> what about them? And Jesus said, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? None of your beeswax is my translation. And then Jesus said, very simply, you follow me. You know what the marvelous thing is about fixing our eyes on Jesus? We're not looking at anybody else. I'm not wondering, what about him? What about her? What about my Christian brothers and sisters who aren't doing what we're supposed to be doing? You do it. Stay in your lane. Don't drop the baton. Stay in your lane. And Jesus could just as easily have said that to Peter. Peter, look, just stay in your lane, bro. You run the race set before you, fixing your eyes on me. And Charles Spurgeon said, Fix not thy gaze upon the cloud of witnesses. They will hinder thee if they take away thine eyes from Jesus. Look not on the weights and the besetting sin these thou hast laid aside. Look away from them. Do not even look upon the race course or the competitors, but look to Jesus and so run the race. By the way, in the relay, there's only one time that you come out of your lane. And that is when you round the last turn and you are in first place. Then you slide into the first lane. And run home. Wait a minute, Rick. What about the promise they did not receive? You never told us what the promise was. Come back Wednesday night. (laughs) And we will talk about it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much for the encouraging words of, of the 12th chapter of Hebrews. For the hope that it gives us. Having had our faith encouraged, now we, we just hear these great words of hope. And our entire hope being You, Lord Jesus. Oh, we fix our eyes on You right now, this morning. We do so through worship, through prayer, through Your Word. Even in this fellowship, Lord, we are here to fix our eyes on You. And I pray You will help us to do that. Oh God, to keep our eyes on You, Lord Jesus. Not to look away. You are so attractive. So beautiful. So remarkable. So wonderful. Why would we look to anybody else? Father, the reason we look away is there are so many skirmishes around us and so many problems. So many life issues and crises and conflicts. And Father, there's so much despair and dissension seems like it's all around us in the world. As though, Lord, we're, we're running this race, but people are shouting us down. And there are those fighting on the sidelines and, and all of this mess around us to try and get our eyes off of where they belong. Jesus, help us to look to You and just to keep running to You. Be Thou our vision. We need You, Lord. Call our attention to You again today. And fill us with the hope of this conflict. In Jesus' name. Amen. There's a marvelous scene in Chariots of Fire where Eric Little is about to run 
his race in the Olympics. And you may remember, I love the camera shot because it's so exact. It is so the way it is. But the shot shows the lane, the race, straight out in front of him. And on the sides around the shot, it's all blur. That's how we are to run. That all of this out here is not our concern. Oh, I know. You might say, well, Rick, but... But we're supposed to love people and care about people and minister to people. Yeah, and you will if your eyes are fixed on Jesus. See, that'll happen when you run, if our eyes are fixed on Jesus. But if we get off the course and try and fix problems and use our human skill and ingenuity to do it, (laughs) we're going to be out of the race. Fix your eyes on Jesus. If you have never put your faith in Him before, Billy Graham was right. Christ died for sinners like you and like me. And if you have never received His life-giving offer of salvation, why don't you come forward this morning and pray with a brother or sister and receive Jesus as Lord and Savior and fix your eyes on Him. If you, like so many of us from time to time, have taken your eyes off Him and you're, you're struggling... And it's not the struggle of faith or of hope. It's, it's just the struggles of life messing with you. It's entangling you. And you need a reset to turn your eyes upon Jesus again. Then come and let's pray about that. Whatever need you have this morning, come to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Come while we sing. Let's stand together.